You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Well, I'll never forget the night. I was 13 years old. I was sitting in my home church. I'm listening to a preacher preach the good news of Jesus. He was telling the story of the gospel of, of Jesus uh, coming to earth and living in our place. He talked about his dying love, him um, being nailed to a tree for our sin in our place. He talked about the resurrection on the third day, Jesus busting out of the grave. And he talked about how uh, if anyone will put their faith in the person that, of Jesus, the, the crucified and risen Jesus, that they would be reconciled to God, brought into the family of God, indwelled and empowered by the Spirit of God. Uh, he, he just unpacked the good news of Jesus. And that was the night that the Lord ambushed me, that the Lord saved me. He tracked me down and rescued me on that night. It was the night that I put my faith in the person of Jesus. And in that moment, 2 Corinthians 5 happened. Um, the Lord made me a new creation. That's the miracle of conversion, that, that you're made a, a holy new person with a new heart. And uh, that was the night in a lot of ways where I just began the journey of every disciple of Jesus. It's that journey of becoming more like Jesus in all of life through the power of the Spirit. And that was the moment where that journey began. And, uh, you know, it's, it's almost comical to me looking back now um, at that moment because I had no idea how difficult it was going to be for that new heart the, that the Lord had given me to begin to work its way out into my hands, uh, for that new heart to actually begin to produce a new life. I just had no idea how painful, how gradual, how difficult that was going to be. I, I can relate to C.S. Lewis when he says, imagine yourself as a living house. So you're the house. God comes in to rebuild the house. And at first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. And you knew those jobs needed doing. And so you weren't that surprised. But then everything changes. Uh, then presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts terribly and doesn't seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? Well, the explanation is that he is building quite a quite different house uh, than the one you thought of. He's throwing out a new wing here. He's putting on an extra floor there. He's running up towers. He's making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace because he intends to come and dwell there himself. I can relate to that. Uh, when I said yes to Jesus, it carried this assumption. Uh, that yes carried the assumption that, well, yeah, of course, God's going to come into the house of my life, and I'm sure some furniture needs to be rearranged. I, I could see the Lord decorating that wall a little bit better, maybe moving that couch over here. It carried the assumption that that's what the Lord was going to be up to. And then all of a sudden, a, a wrecking ball comes slamming through the wall, right? 
All of a sudden, doors start getting thrown off their hinges. Foundations start to, to, to get torn asunder. All of those things started to happen. Now, why is that? Why does the Lord do that in all of our lives? We think it's going to be a furniture sort of redistribution and walls start crashing down. Why is that? What is the Lord up to? Well, this is what the Lord is up to. God is committed to seeing Christ formed in every one of his sons and daughters. He's committed to seeing Christ formed in you, to use Paul's language in Galatians 4. And this is amazing. He invites us, and as we'll see today, even commands us to participate in that forming work. He, he looks at us and says, this is what I'm doing in your life. I am forming Christ in you, and I want you to be involved in that forming work. You have a part to play in this. I'm giving you a role in, in your formation. So, so this is where we're headed today. We're going to take another step in this set of sermons called Formed that we've been in this fall. And this step is going to be toward 1 Timothy chapter 4. Now, let me give you a little bit of context of, of this letter. Uh, 1 Timothy is a letter that Paul is writing to Timothy, his son in the faith. And Timothy is pastoring the church in Ephesus. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul tells us the purpose of the letter. Why is he writing this letter to Timothy? He tells him in uh, chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, Paul says, I'm writing these things to you, Timothy, so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Uh, in a lot of ways, Paul is pastoring the pastor. He's pastoring Timothy. Uh, he is talking to Timothy about uh, various things in the life of a church. He's talking to him about uh, the purpose of the life of Jesus. In 1 Timothy uh, 1, he says, Jesus came for this reason, to save sinners. That, that's why he came. He talks to him about prayer in chapter 2. In chapter 3, he talks to him about leaders in the church. And then when you get to chapter 4, Paul pauses to encourage his son in the faith, Timothy. And he says in chapter 4, verse 6, if you, Timothy, put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. He's saying, Timothy, here's how you faithfully pastor people. Here's how you stay and become a good servant of Jesus. You keep putting these things, these things that I've told you, these things that you have seen me practice, you, you, these things that you're reading in the scriptures, you keep putting these things before God's people. You keep preaching these true things, Timothy, and you'll be a good servant. You'll be a faithful pastor. And then Paul gets to verse 7. And in verse 7, he says, Have nothing to do with irreverent or silly myths, but rather train yourself for godliness. Train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. I want to spend our time this morning thinking about those four words. Train yourself for godliness. Train yourself for godliness. And I want to take those two wor or four words in two parts. What's wanted and what's required. We'll just take that phrase in two parts. What's wanted and what's required. So let's start with what's wanted. Paul says, talking to Timothy again, he says, train yourself for what? 
Godliness. Train yourself for godliness. Uh, That word godliness shows up 15 times in the New Testament. Of those 15 times, 13 are in the pastoral letters, Paul's letters here, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, 13 of those. And then of those 13 that show up in those three letters, nine of those 13 occurrences of this word godliness shows up in 1st Timothy. This is something that Paul is concerned about. This is a big word in Paul's vocabulary, godliness. So so what is that word? Well, I I think you could think of the word godliness like this. It's God-likeness. That's godliness. It's you becoming more and more like Jesus. It's God-likeness. Or if we want to bring it into the sort of vocabulary of this set of sermons, we might say it this way. Godliness is a fully formed heart. That's godliness. Uh, Godliness is a heart that reflects Jesus reflexively. It's what godliness is, a heart that reflects Jesus reflexively. It means that our hearts reflexively love what Jesus loves and are springing toward those things. And our hearts reflexively hate what Jesus hates and it reflexively recoils from from those things. That the reflexes of our heart get trained to reflect the heart of Jesus. That is a fully formed heart. So let me revisit some imagery that we used um, about a month and a half ago in our first sermon in this formed set of sermons to talk about what a fully formed heart looks like. So we talked about, if you can remember back, of imagining yourself on a path and you're walking on this path with Jesus. And we'll just call this path joy. That's the name of the path. It's called the path of, of joy. And around this path of joy, on both sides of the path, Um, Jesus graciously puts a fence, and that fence goes by many names. But there's a fence on each side of the path to help us stay on the path and help us stay out of the wilderness that's on the outside of the path. And we'll just call that wilderness the wilderness of death. So uh, just imagine you're doing great. You're walking along the path called joy with Jesus. You're just, you're loving Jesus. You're loving what's going on. You're you're loving the path. Everything's going great until you fly off the handle at that person who's offended you. I mean, anger does, it just doesn't really do justice to what you're feeling on the inside. You are so offended and so angry that you instantly start just plotting your payback. And right at that precise moment where you're trying to figure out where am I going to hide this body, that's when you bump into the fence. And in this moment, that fence is called fear. And you start to think, well, if if I kill this person, I'm going to go to prison. I I don't want to go to prison. I'm not going to do that. So you turn from the wilderness of death and you come back onto the path of joy. And you start walking with Jesus again on this path of joy until you meet the person at the office. And one thing leads to another, and you find yourself walking again straight toward the wilderness of death as you step into and toward an affair. And right when you're about to take that decisive step, you bump into the fence again. But this time, the fence isn't called fear. This time, it's called guilt. And you start thinking about your spouse, and you start thinking about your kids. And, man, I, I can't, I can't, do, I'm not going to do that. I can't break their heart that way. So you turn again back from the wilderness of death and you come back onto the path of joy and it's going great. You're walking on the path of joy until you find yourself embittered against that coworker. 
and you find yourself yet again stumbling toward the wilderness of death as, as you open your mouth and you slander and you want to gossip about this person. But, but right at the precise moment, you, you open up your mouth just with this heart and desire to rip that person's reputation to shreds, to let the world know what you know about them. Just at the precise moment, you bump into the fence again. And this time, that, that fence is not called fear. It's not called guilt. It's called the law. And you remember Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good as for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And although you want to do it, you're like, no, I'm not going to do it because I know this would break the heart of Jesus if I do that. So I'm not going to open up my mouth. I'm not going to say those harsh and condemning and, and reputation shredding words about this person. And again, you, you turn from the wilderness of death and you come back onto the path of joy. Now, think about each of those moments. We could all look at those moments and say, thank God for the fence. Yes, the fence in those moments kept us from the wilderness of death. So, so yes, thank God for the fence. But I want you to think about what's happening in each of those moments. The fence is needed because our heart is deformed. That's why that fence is needed. To a deformed heart, the path of joy looks like death. So we, we stumble off the path. And the wilderness of death looks like joy. So we stumble off the path of joy, looking at the wilderness, thinking that's that over there, death, that, that's where joy is going to be found. Our hearts are deformed in that way. Deformed hearts see that differently. Joy becomes death and death becomes joy. So in each of these moments, obedience or returning to the path of joy happened because of a fence, not a reflex. But a formed heart doesn't need the fence because it loves what's underfoot. It loves the path of joy. It loves and longs for the things that Jesus loves and longs for. It hates the wilderness of death. It can see death for what it is. If I go over there, I'm not going to flourish. This is not going to be good for anyone. My joy is going to shrink and shrivel. No to that. Yes to the path of joy. It's seeing it like that. Now, I want to just say this as clearly as I can to you. Jesus is not after your external conformity. He is not after disciples whose, whose hearts want death, but offense is just keeping them in. That, that's not what he's after. Jesus is after your heart. He, he's after the, the deepest places of your heart. He, he's after your heart being formed in such a way where it would reflect him reflexively. He's after, he's after a pattern of your life for you to grow into the sort of person, the sort of disciple who is, who is more and more growing the disposition and the heart that is loving what he loves and hating what he hates. That is what Jesus is after, your heart. It's what Paul is after here, godliness. He's after godliness, a fully formed heart. He wants to see Christ formed in our hearts, in Timothy's heart, and by extension, in your heart. That's what's wanted, godliness, a fully formed heart, a heart that reflects Jesus reflexively. Now, what's required? Or how do we get there? How does that happen for a human being? 
Now, the Bible doesn't give a simplistic answer to that question. The Bible addresses the how of change, that the how of, of our hearts being formed into the image of Jesus, of Christ being formed in us, it gives a multidimensional answer to that question. So here's the first thing that, that we might learn from the scriptures is we're, we're asking, well, what's required to have a heart like that? We could say this from the Bible, that formation requires grace. Apart from grace, your heart will never be fully formed. It will always be deformed. We need grace. A fully formed heart starts with grace. It starts with the grace of God bringing a dead person to life, giving us a new heart, making us a new creation. It starts with grace and it is sustained by grace. You will not have a fully formed heart apart from the sustaining grace of God at work in your life. There's never going to be a day where you wake up as a disciple of Jesus and think, you know what? I've outgrown grace. I just don't need it anymore. It's just, it's no longer relevant to my life. I I, I no longer need the grace of God to be at work in my, no, there's never going to be a day. You're going to wake up every day dependent upon the good news of Jesus. This is why we have said over the course of this set of sermons that if we want our hearts to go from deformed to reformed, fully formed, if we want that, our hearts must see the person and promises of Jesus. We we must see the grace of God, be awed by the grace of God. This is 1 Corinthians 3, where Paul says, if you wanna become like Jesus, Behold Jesus, behold the person and the promises of Jesus. Stare at it, let your hearts be awed by it. Delight yourself in the person and promises of Jesus. And this is the terrain we've been covering for the last uh, four or five weeks. Uh, We have been working through the person and promises of Jesus. Uh, So we've worked through these four G's that God is great for us so we don't have to be in control. Uh, That God is good so we don't have to look for satisfaction elsewhere that God is gracious so we don't have to prove ourselves, and that God is glorious so we don't have to fear people. I wanna say this again, hearts do not change apart from the grace of God. Our our hearts must see the person and promises of Jesus. And, And if we want those promises to be pressed down into the deepest parts of our heart where it matters most, then we've gotta find those promises in the Bible. You you gotta find them. And they're contained in passages in the Bible. So we find those promises. We we commit them to memory. We hide them in our heart. And then we develop sermons so that we can preach those promises to ourselves when we need them. We've got to find those promises and preach them. Formation requires grace. We, We know we've got to say that if we're talking about what does it look like? What's required for our hearts to be formed? But another thing the Bible shows us is that yes, formation does require grace and formation requires grit. Grace and grit. So if you just start reading the New Testament, you're gonna find language like this in the New Testament. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Strive for holiness. You're going to see these commands to toil and to, and to labor and to press on and to persevere. All of those words and phrases are, are giving uh, sort of credence to and describing what's needed to grow in godliness. This is why we've said that if our hearts are going to be formed, yes, our hearts need to see uh, the person and promises of Jesus, and our hearts need to be trained. 
So there is a seeing component and then there's a training component. Or as Paul says here, train yourself for godliness. Train yourself. Your heart has to be trained. So so get about the work of training yourself, training your heart for godliness. Now, uh, when we're talking about grace and grit, I want to take two minutes to make a really important clarification. Because if this this goes wrong, everything else goes wrong. So, So let me be as clear as I can on this. It is always in the Christian life, grace before grit. It's always grace before grit. Now, here is the problem in our life, though. We have a default mechanism in our heart that wants to to earn grace. So so we have a default way of switching the equation to where it's no longer grace before grit, but it's grit my work to earn grace, to, to get grace. We have a way of switching it so that it's grit before grace. And that is a huge problem in the Bible. Uh, in the Bible, here's how that equation would work. When grace is before grit, that equals earning in the Bible. And the Bible is clear, you cannot earn grace. When grit goes before grace, you're turning grace into a commodity that you purchase. But but grace is not a commodity to purchase. You cannot earn grace. The only way you can get grace in the Bible is to open up your hands, stop your work, and receive it. That is the only way to get grace. So so the, the grit versus grace equation does not work. It will kill you in this life and forever. So you gotta get the equation right. It is not grit before grace, it is grace before grit. Now here's how that equation works in the Bible. Where grit before grace equals earning, grace before grit equals effort in the Bible. And the Bible applauds effort. The Bible commends effort. The Bible commends effort, striving, working, toiling, pressing on. The Bible is a big, huge yes to effort. You will not fall into a fully formed heart. You're not just going to magically wake up one day and are like, oh my, my my heart. It just is reflecting Jesus reflexively. It it doesn't work that way. You're not going to fall into a heart like that. Formation is a fight, and that fight of formation requires a grace-empowered grit. It requires it. You you don't get there without it. It requires a grace-empowered grit, this Holy Spirit-wrought striving, working, training. But the equation has to be right. It's grace before grit. Now, Paul calls this grit something in this text, right? What's the language he uses? Grit in this text is training. He says, train yourself for godliness. Now, training is athletic imagery. And I think it's great imagery to use to describe what the Christian life feels like. It's it's athletic imagery. And it shows us, athletic imagery shows us the necessity of training. Uh, There's going to be a picture up on the screen for you. Anybody recognize this guy? Anybody got a name? Andre Agassi. That's my man up there on the screen. In 1992, Andre Agassi made the finals of Wimbledon. So he's in the finals. It's the most prestigious tournament in the world. 
uh, of Wimbledon. Now, leading up to this point, Andre Agassi had developed a reputation for being one of the best tennis players on the planet, but just not being able to win in the big moments. He just couldn't win the big matches. So he'd had a couple of chances, but just couldn't cash in on the chances. So that reputation uh, was kind of... Uh, just being stuck to him and kind of attaching itself to him at this point. So here he is in the finals. It's 1992, and across the net from him is a guy named Goran Ivanisevic. And this guy had like this massive serve. He had won Wimbledon the year before, serves at like 134, five miles an hour, just hits a huge serves. And so here they go. They're clashing. Biggest moment, biggest match of Andre Agassi's life, uh, finals of Wimbledon. Uh, he goes out, he uh, loses the first set. He wins the second and third set. Then he gets pounded in the fourth set. He loses 6-1 in the fourth set. So now this whole thing comes down. The biggest moment of his life comes down to one set. Whoever wins the fifth set wins Wimbledon. The biggest moment, the biggest tennis moment of Andre Agassi's life. This is for all the, the sort of marbles here. It, it's that moment. And in the fifth set, uh, Andre finds himself up five to four. He wins one more game. He's got this thing. And in the, the next game, uh, five, four, so now Goran is serving and he's serving uh, to Andre, this huge serve. He double faults a couple of times and Andre Agassi finds himself at match point. If I win one more point, I'm going to be uh, the Wimbledon champion in 1992. So here it comes. Here's the serve guy hitting again, just this huge serve. Comes to his backhand side, match point, biggest moment of his tennis life. This is the win Wimbledon. And he rips a backhand cross court, forces an error, and wins Wimbledon. Go Andre Agassi. Just an amazing moment. Now ask yourself the question, how in the world is that possible? In the biggest moment of your sort of athletic life, extreme pressure, I mean, you, you feel tight, you are nervous, you've got all of that going on, you've got a guy who's got one of the best serves on the planet. How is it that in that moment, he hits it to your backhand and you just, I mean, hit a perfect backhand in the moment? In the moment you needed it most, how is that possible? Answer, training, training, unseen training. Training that's happening for years that no one else even knows about. That, that's how it's possible. At the age of seven, Andre Agassi started hitting 2,500 tennis balls every day. At the age of seven. That's a million tennis balls a year to be able, in the biggest moment of his tennis life, to hit that shot when he needed it most. Triumph, that triumph came from training. That's where it came from. Now, there is a generally sort of accepted principle now in sort of the athletic world, and this goes really in any world where people are at the top end of their craft, whatever their craft is, and it's called the 10,000-hour rule, that it takes 10,000 hours to be great at anything. It takes unbelievable training, hours and hours and hours of training. Mozart was not just Mozart. It was Mozart, a gifted guy, training 10,000 hours that produced Mozart that we know. 
LeBron is not just LeBron James. It's a very talented person combined with 10,000 hours producing what you see on the court. Tom Brady, arguably the best football player that's ever been alive, it's a gifted person combined with unbelievable work and you bring that together and you, it produces the Tom Brady that we know of today. None of those ha things happen apart from a long-term regimen of training. Every one of those people that we're talking, it's a long-term regimen of training. Now, Paul is borrowing that imagery. He's saying, do you, do you see how that works out there in all of those other worlds? Now he's saying, okay, apply that to this. Train yourself for godliness. So let's go back to Andre Agassi for a moment. How ridiculous would it be for a person to think, okay, it's the Wimbledon finals. It's match point. Biggest moment of my tennis life. I've got the best server on the other side of me that's alive today. This is the situation. and I'm about to hit a perfect shot. How ridiculous would it be for him to think that way if he doesn't hit any tennis balls? If he doesn't hit the, the, the millions of tennis balls over the course of his life, the hundreds of tennis balls that week, the thousands that week to prepare himself for that moment. How ridiculous would it be for him to expect in the moment where he needs it most, that backhand to show up? Paul is saying it would be just as ridiculous for a Christian to think in the moment you're gonna need it most, godliness, a fully formed heart, in the moment you're gonna need it most, for it to show up apart from spiritual training. It just doesn't work that way. Just like a guy doesn't stumble out onto the court and have a great backhand. You don't stumble out on the field and be able to throw a pass perfect. You just, it doesn't work that way. It takes training. Paul is saying in the same way, godliness requires training. Formation, the formation of your heart requires training. Train yourself for godliness. This pastor is right when he says, no one ever says, if you want to be a great athlete, go and vault 18 feet. Just go try that first. No, no one ever says that. No one ever says, hey, do this first. Go out and run a, a mile under four minutes. No one says that. Or he says, if, if you want to be a great musician, uh, go and play uh, Beethoven, the violin concerto. Go do that first. No one does that, right? It would be ridiculous because you can't do that at first. Instead, we advise the young artist or athlete to enter a certain kind of overall life, a life of training, one involving deep associations with qualified people as well as rigorously scheduled time, diet, and activity for the mind and body. That's what's needed for every athlete, for every musician, and for every Christian. Uh, let's think about Corey Ten Boom for a moment. Her family hid uh, Jewish brothers and sisters during World War II. And she and her sister ended up in a concentration camp. And there, in that camp, they endured thousands of brutalities. Thousands, daily, uh, by the hundreds. Uh, moments of being violated, disrespected. Just, it was a terrible season. And her sister ended up dying in that concentration camp. And it was just really by a miracle of God, a clerical error, that Corey Timboon survived that concentration camp. And then one day, she is sharing her story. And after the service, a man walks up to her. He introduces himself, and she instantly recognizes him as one of the guards of that concentration camp. And he looks at her, 
and he says, will you forgive me? Will you forgive me? Now, that's a Super Bowl moment in a life, right? That is match point at Wimbledon right there. That, that, is, that is one of those crucial moments in a human life. And she looks at the man and says, yes, I will. I will. What made that possible in her heart? Now, we would all say, rightly, well, the grace of God made that possible. That, that is a very true statement, but I think it would be more precise to say it this way. Grace-empowered grit made that possible. What made that possible is she had been training all of her life for that moment. That, that, that's what was going on in her world and in her life. She had been practicing self-denial, practicing perseverance and suffering, practicing forgiveness, practicing a refusal to hold grudges and nourish resentment. She had been practicing all of those things. It's that grace-empowered grit that readied her for that moment. And you're going to have moments like that. We're all going to have moments like that. And it would be foolish to think in that moment, I'm going to hit the right backhand apart from training. Apart from you practicing all of those things in your normal, everyday, monotonous, mundane life, practicing for those moments. Formation or reformation requires training. And here's why training is so important. It's because training develops habits. It is hard to overstate the importance of habits in our life. Habits are those deeply ingrained patterns by which we live. And we all have th these patterns. We live by and through th those patterns or habits. They set the direction of your life. Habits don't just shape your calendar, they shape your heart. This is why it would be right to say that over time, your habits will either make you or break you. Habits are that important in our life. They're so important that anyone who is trying to pay attention to who they are becoming should also pay attention to what habits are in their life. Uh, C.S. Lewis, he had this insight in the Screwtape letters. Uh, Uncle Screwtape, he, uh, uh, he is all over his apprentice demon, uh, Wormwood, uh, for letting his patient, right? If you know the story, it's demons that are, are harassing and pursuing uh, people. And in this moment, a Christian convert. Uh, and he's harassing Wormwood for letting the patient become a Christian. But then notice what Uncle Screwtape says to Wormwood. He goes on to say this. Even though this guy's become a Christian, he says, there's no need to despair. Hundreds of these adult converts have been reclaimed after a brief sojourn in the enemy's camp and are not, uh, and are not with us. And listen to what he says. All the habits of the patient, both mental and bodily, are still in our favor. So, so Wormwood, don't worry too much about him becoming a Christian because we still have his habits. All of his habits are still working with us, not uh, for the enemy, in this case, for, for God. Now, Uncle Screwtape had some, some insight here. He knew that a new convert wouldn't change unless his habits changed. He knew that there are no changed lives without changed habits. Or we could say it this way, new hearts need new habits. New hearts need new habits. Now, why is that? 
Well, here's one reason. It's because habits have a way of automating our responses. Habits are forming our reflexes. Each day you wake up with thousands of decisions. Every day, we, we all make thousands and thousands of decisions. And the vast majority of those decisions are, are made not because you're thinking about each decision, but, but out of habit or out of reflex. That, that's how, they're automated decisions. So let me give you an example of this. After a long day uh, of work, have you ever uh, gone to your car, you turned the ignition on, you started driving, then you started thinking about something else, and the next thing you knew, you were driving into your driveway. That is so scary, isn't it? <laughs> that we do that sort of thing. But it's a perfect example of how habits work in our life. Driving is an unbelievably complicated task. And you remember the first time you drove? You were freaking out the first time you drove. You're like, oh my gosh, I can't take my eye off the road, but where's the blinker? And you're looking down, trying to find the blinker. And then you're like, how much gas and how much brake? And, and, and how, I, how, I'm making all these slight adjustments to not kill the other driver over there and to keep me out of the, I mean, it is a complicated task. But do you know what allows you to, I mean, do an incredibly complicated task without thinking about it? Training. Because training are forming habits. And over time, you begin to drive out of those habits. You, you begin to drive in a way where you're not even thinking about the complicated thing that you're doing. You're thinking about something uh, totally different. Now, he, here is what's amazing. Um, research is essentially just conclusive on this idea. That the vast majority of decisions that you make, th those decisions are made in a very similar way as you turning on that blinker while you're driving. You're not thinking about it. You don't put a lot of thought into like what should happen? How should this moment? You just react reflexively. That is the power of habits in your life. This is why Paul is saying, train yourself for godliness. Habits reform our hearts. And when habits are right, our hearts get reformed in a way where they reflect Jesus reflexively. When our habits are wrong, we, we do the opposite. We, we reflect the opposite of Jesus reflexively. So take uh, Corey Timboon's life again. When the guard comes, right, she, she's built the reflex over a long period of time, over a lot of training for godliness. She's built the reflex. She's built the habit so that doing anything other than looking at this man and saying, I forgive you, would feel so weird to her would feel at the end of the day so unnatural to her. that The reflex is being built in her life so that this moment is happening. Godliness is coming out of her. And the same is true with how we operate with risk, how we operate with generosity, how we operate with our words, how we operate with lust versus purity. That those habits are so important in all of those sort of examples of godliness. Now, this is where we're going over the next couple of months. We're exploring together grace-empowered grit. Here's the way I'm just thinking about the next couple of months. It is us collectively as a church getting into the spiritual gym together and us developing some workout regimens, some training regimens. We're going to look at those spiritual habits that Christians throughout the centuries have used to train themselves, to train their hearts for godliness. That's what we're doing over the next couple of months. So let me end here by doing a couple of things. I want to give you some homework, and I want to make one ask of you. So some, two kind of 
homework assignments and one ask. Here's the homework. Uh, homework assignment number one is an inventory. It's a habit inventory. This is just a way for you to, uh, to pay attention to your habits. If you are concerned about who you are becoming, you need to be equally concerned about your habits. But most of our habits lie under the radar. We're just not really aware of the habits in our life that are forming us one way or the other, either deforming us or reforming us. So a habit inventory is just a way for you to be able to um, think about your day. What, what are the habits that start my day when I wake up? What are the habits that I'm seeing throughout my day as I'm living my life? And then what are the habits in the evening as I go to bed? What, what, what am I doing normally? What are the liturgies? What are the rhythms? What are the patterns that are automating my responses, forming me for good or ill? What are they? Uh, so that habit inventory, we're going to send out to you today. We're going to make that available to everyone in our church. I would just encourage you. This is a great day today. It's a great day to jump on that assignment just to track through what, what are the habits that make up my life. That, that resource is gonna be coming for you. The second one is a habit tracker. So the first one, habit inventory, just allows you to pay attention to your habits. The habit tracker is allowing you to proactively begin to develop, to train, to ask the question of what habits do I wanna begin? What training regimens do I wanna start in my life? What, what sort of grace-empowered grits, where should that lead me first? But what habits do I want to pay attention to first? It'll allow you to track some daily habits that you want to start, some weekly habits that you want to start, some monthly habits that you want to start. It's just built to be a good tool for you to pay attention, right? That's the habit inventory. And then to develop those habits. That's the habit tracker. So that's your homework assignment. Do those two things today. We're going to make those resources available to you. Now, here is the ask. One key habit, and I would just say if, if I had just one to start with, this would be the one I would want to start with in every Christian life. One key habit is Bible intake or Bible reading. So here is my ask for you as we, we are finishing 2021. There are, when you wake up tomorrow, there are 61 days left in the year. And here's what I'm asking starting November 1 tomorrow, that our entire church family gets on a Bible reading plan that just systematically takes you through the breadth of the Bible, that you get on a Bible reading plan. Now, you may already have a plan that you love and you're kind of working on in 2021. If so, then great, you stay with it and jump on it. Stay, stay on that plan. If not, and I think that would probably be the vast majority of us in the room, I'm gonna give you two options uh, as maybe a way to finish 2021 with an effort to allow grace and powered grit to begin to form a habit of Bible reading in your life. Option number one is just our normal Stonegate Bible reading plan. It's a great Bible reading plan. It gives you a New Testament chapter a day and an, and an Old Testament chapter a day. Uh, it's not super difficult. You're going to read somewhere between two and maybe eight minutes a day, something like that. It's a very manageable, doable uh, Bible reading plan. And I would commend that to you. That could be a very good place uh, for us to start, uh, many of us in the room. Option number two is a reading plan. And you should have gotten this maybe on your way in. It's gonna be on the pub tables. We've got a lot of them out there. It's also gonna be on the website. We'll make it available to you. Is a reading plan that takes you through the whole New Testament, the Psalms and the Proverbs twice. And here's the catch about this reading plan. All of that happens over the course of 60 days. 
which fits perfectly because we have 61 days left in the year. You're gonna wake up tomorrow, November one starts, 61 days to get through a 60 day plan. You've got one day to make up in there, right? Now this is a more rigorous plan. Uh, it's gonna be about 25 minutes a day to work through that plan to cover the New Testament, Psalms and Proverbs over the next 60 days. And I would commend that to you. If we just didn't look at Facebook for two months and use that time to read the Bible, you'd have more than enough time to read that one, right? You'd have all the time that you need, right, to do that. So I would commend that to you. Can, can you imagine how your heart might be formed by the end of this year in ways that you wouldn't even know or even feel in the moment by spending 25 minutes a day just baptizing your heart in the scriptures? So pick your plan. This is my ask. Pick one of those two plans. When you pick that plan, pick two to four people to read it with, to do it with. So community is really important in developing habits together. You need encouragement. You need people with you doing these things. So pick your plan, pick your people. When you find your people, get on a text thread together where every day for the next 60 days, you check in with one another, done. And you give one way the Lord's teaching you as you've been reading the Bible today. So done, and here's what the Lord showed me today is I've, I've opened up the scriptures and, and I'm learning from him. So, so get community around you as you're reading the scriptures. That's my ask. One plan, get your people, get your text read, then check in and encourage one another. Can you imagine if our entire church family over the next 60 days jumps into that? We as a church family begin to be formed more and more. Our hearts form to reflect Jesus reflexively. I'm gonna finish by allowing Eugene Peterson to get the last word. Here is his paraphrase in the message of 1 Timothy 4, 7 through 10. I'll just finish by encouraging you with that. He says, exercise daily in God. Exercise every day of your life. Exercise daily in God. He goes on to say, no spiritual flabbiness, please. Amen to that, right? Exercise daily in God. No spiritual flabbiness, please. Workouts in the gym are useful, but a disciplined life in God is far more so. Making you fit both today and forever. You can count on that. You can count on it. Take it to heart. This is why we've thrown ourselves into this venture so totally. We're banking on the living God, the savior of all men and women, especially believers. Stonegate, may we get into the gym together, amen? Why don't you pray with me? I just wanna give you a brief moment to allow the spirit of God to press down those things that would be most helpful to you today, to wipe away the things that would not be helpful and Why don't you ask the Lord for, what is the, what is the way you would like for me to respond today? What would a responsive heart to you look like in this moment? For some, that's gonna mean, just like when I was 13 years old, it's gonna mean pushing your life in with Jesus for the very first time. It's gonna be like you, holding up your life to the Lord and saying, God, I'm trusting in the person of Jesus. Rescue me, save me. Here I am, I am yours, oh God. And if that's you, just in the best way you know how, you can call out to the, to the Lord, save me, rescue me. And he would love to do that right now in this moment. 
For others, maybe we need a moment of repentance for our spiritual flabbiness. Just a lack of spiritually working out. And then we can re-offer the next 60 days of our life. God, help me. Help me develop the, the training regimen, the habits that I need, that my heart needs. My new heart needs new habits. So God, help me, help me work these things out, develop these things. So God, would you do that? Would you meet us now? Would you give us the grace we need to empower grit, work, striving? God, we all need grace for that. So, so meet us with that grace now. And it's in the good name of Jesus we ask it.